politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hey, thanks for joining us after your Memorial Day holiday weekend for today's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. 90.7 FM for all of Southern California and live streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Our guest today is going to speak to us about a fascinating topic. If you're uh, Jungian in your orientation, you know about the shadow self. Uh, some people just call it the ego, that part of us that identifies as a separated being, and which accounts for a remarkably unnecessary degree of defensiveness. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed how defensive people are. A good place to begin is to take a look at your tendency to be defensive. If uh, someone challenges you, why is it so hard to say, well, I don't see it that way, but you probably have a point. No, we get all riled up as if we've been physically threatened or attacked, and we defend ourselves. What, what are you defending? Who are you defending? And what is it that makes you believe you need some sort of defense when somebody just disagrees with you? They're not really threatening you. They're not going to kill you or physically attack you. But we react as if that may be the case. What's the big deal? It's because we are much more than we believe ourselves to be. We are not these separated meat sacks banging around in a world of separated form. You know, in child development, a lot is made of separation anxiety. A lot of psychotherapists' couches are inhabited by clients or patients who feel they've been abandoned. And if you're a child, that can be a very serious trauma. That's uh, abusive. To not be available for a child, to cause them to feel the fear of abandonment or being alone. Children are so dependent. So that's understandable. But we're supposed to outgrow that and become more independent and not carry that childhood dependence into adulthood and then create relationships with other dependent people such that we become codependent hey, you're supposed to fill me with love, and then I'll do that for you. It's like two empty vessels promising to fill each other up. It just doesn't work. It seems to work for 30 or 90 days. You might even get a year out of it. But then the emptiness returns, and because we gave the partner credit for filling us up, now they're responsible for no longer doing that. But uh, they never filled us up. We just let go of our fear that we were unworthy and unlovable. The love we felt was our love in the absence of our fear. 
but we gave them credit for it. And then when our loneliness returns, we blame them. Well, it turns out there's a name for this false self, this separated self, beyond borrowing from Freud and using the word ego, or the word personality, which is rooted in persona, which means mask, the personality that we cobble together out of a desire to please other people, to gain their approval and their acceptance, is a role. It's a, it's a character that we play. There's nothing really genuine or authentic about it. Not really. So our guest today is the fellow who introduced me to this term, Watiko. And we'll talk about the term, and we'll talk about the concept of the shadow self, the false self, the person we think we are, that separated self, banging around, as I said, in a a world of separated form, having constantly to defend ourselves against who knows what, basically anything we don't understand, (laughs) we, we become defensive and argumentative. But this is particularly important, don't you think, in this day and age where there is so much tribalism and division? And I know we see it as political, but it's not. Many people are quick to remind us this is a cultural divide. People on the right don't, by large anyway, have some conservative uh, political agenda they're certainly not about small government. They're, they're, they're not about civil rights or human rights. They shout freedom, but they push for anarchy. It's not really political at all. In many ways, it's cultural. It's an inability to deal with change. And progressives or liberals, they love change. We, we've been working for change and, and more peace and social justice. And that threatens the people who are uncomfortable in the presence of people that look different or have a different religion or uh, speak a different language or eat different kinds of food or even have their own music or dance in a different way. Makes them very uncomfortable. So what do we do about that? The solution is not political. The problem is political. There's, there's not some limousine liberal that's going to come over the hill and save us from ourselves. Politics is not the answer. The answer, I believe, is awareness. And that has to begin with a recognition of the true self. And in order to find the true self, we must take that path which in philosophy is called via negativa, we must eliminate <laughs> the false self. That's what Wetiko is, the false self. Or it's really a, a wicked and, and, and evil and dark side that believes we're all alone in the world and we need to spend our lives not only defending that false self, but reaching out for connection. And when that doesn't work, because it's really a kind of insanity, we get all crazy and upset and even see our family members and our best friends and our spouses as enemies. You know, the same fight-or-flight reaction, the same adrenaline rush, uh, 
that would come up in the presence of some clear and present danger, some physical attack, often rises up in the presence of the people you love the most. Think about it. Who have you said the nastiest things to? Strangers? Probably not. You probably save the really cruel speech for the people who love you the most, those who you love the most, because they can hurt you so easily, and so you want to hurt them to make sure they know how much you hurt. And so we create our own torment as a way of punishing other people. So it's sort of crazy. This is called self-grasping ignorance. We're so much more. We're love and light. We're wisdom. We're awareness. We're insight and understanding. We are kindness and compassion. And that's not something that we need to attain. That's not an accomplishment or a matter of maturity. All you need to do is let go of everything that is not peace and happiness and love and and kindness and compassion and and empathy, and humor, and an appreciation of beauty, and patience, and tolerance, and, you know, those qualities. This is KPFK. I'm Michael Benner, and you're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles for all of Southern California and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to take on a big topic in our show today. We're going to talk about the shadow side, about the dark night of the soul, about uh, Gosh, I guess what you could call evil and um, a term that may be unfamiliar to you. It was for me until recently, and that's called Watiko. It's, as I understand it, a Native American indigenous people's term for um, this whole shadow spirit, this uh, shadow self, the dark side that we really seem to be in the grips of or really in the on the edge, walking the razor's edge, so to speak. Paul Levy is our guest today. He has two books that I'd like to talk about. The most recent, he uses this term, Wotiko. This is about what I think of as the shadow self, to draw on the Jungian concept of the unconscious, including the shadow. St. John wrote about the dark night of the soul, I guess we all know that yin and yang symbol from Chinese Taoism, where the shadow is just as predominant as the light. And, you know, I think the New Age movement, so-called, if that term is still being used, often portrays spirituality as a search for rainbows and unicorns. And, uh, gosh, the path to goodness, truth, and beauty goes through some very dark and and, uh, scary areas. So that's what we're going to talk about today, how to redeem that fear, that ignorance, and that evil, that wickedness into something truly beautiful, not just in your personal life, but on a global level. 
And with us today from Portland, Oregon, is Paul Levy. Paul, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK. Yeah, hi. I'm so happy to be here with you, Michael. Thank you. Tell me when you discovered this term, Watiko, and what's it mean to you? Well, I was having a personal um, encounter with it over 40 years ago, but I didn't have the name for it. I didn't have any, any conception of it. But I was having an unmediated, unmediated encounter, a direct encounter with archetypal evil, not personal evil, but archetypal evil. And it destroyed my entire family and it almost drove me insane. And yet I was able to take notes and to draw maps because I was understanding that something was actually being shown to me. And so then over the course, that was in um, the late 70s, early 80s. And then over the course of time, maybe 20 years ago, I um, discovered that the Native American tradition, they have this phrase, Watiko, that connotes the spirit of evil. It's sort of this cannibalistic sickness, the sickness of exploitation. And the more I studied it, the more I had the realization, oh my God, this completely describes and maps onto what I had been tracking because what I was realizing was that there was this darker force that was non-locally um, sort of encoded throughout the field in all dimensions, both in the world and within our minds. And um, that if we don't, if we're not aware of it, it then inspires the deepest evil, both personal, on the personal level, relationally with each other and collectively as a body politic. But I was beginning to understand that encoded, hidden encoded within the seeming pathology of the evil, it was actually revealing something to us. It was actually helping us. It was stimulating our evolution um, and unlocking the most sublime creativity. That's our nature. But if we don't recognize what it's revealing to us, it will kill us. So what I'm basically trying to say is that it's that this Watiko, it's like this, this mind virus. It is literally at the bottom of the collective madness that we've fallen into because Watiko is a collective psychosis and it's inspiring all the evil that we're playing out as a species on all scales. And so it's a real discovery. I didn't make it. I'm just a translator. Every spiritual tradition, including the Bible, is pointing at Watiko. They're just doing it in different different symbols, different names. And so um, that's what my work is about. I'm trying to get out to people, to help people to have a frame of reference that really can help them to integrate and conceptualize and get a handle on the madness and evil that's playing out in our world. Paul, I think, speaking for myself at least, dealing with the idea of evil or fear or shadow is difficult because in one sense, we have these ancient religious traditions that treat evil, I'll call it, as if it's a force. And it's even personified as this uh, mm -hmm. little devil in the, in the red outfit with the pitchfork and, mm -hmm. and he and God are having this uh, feud back and forth. Although God's apparently hired him to run uh, hell for him. So I'm not sure how that works. But uh, the, the idea then in a lot of mysticism is that, no, evil is not really a force. It's the absence of divinity and, and goodness. And yet 
like so many things, there's an absolute and a relative nature too. Right. Right. So a shadow can be a force, can't it? Yeah. Well, one way to envision that, you know, and I've written about this extensively, think about if there's a room where the windows are closed, so it's just totally in darkness, the lights are turned off, and that darkness seems real. And yet when you open the window and the sunlight floods in, what happens to the darkness? It instantaneously evaporates as if it never existed. But as long as that darkness, as long as that window is closed, that darkness has an effect. And I think of in the collected works, Jung talks about, you know, from the point of view of the psyche, if something works, it's real. So from that relative level, until we illumine and bring in the sunlight, that darkness, it will blind us, you know? And so it has a real effect. So from the psychic, from the level of the, uh, the point of view of the psyche, it has a reality. And keep in mind, I'm not talking about evil from like a theological point of view, from a metaphysical point of view. I have no authorization to do that. I'm talking about it psychologically. And that's exactly like Jung, that psychologically evil or whatever we call it, is is very real we're seeing it enacted in a in a destructive self or other destructive way it has a disintegrating effect on our wholeness as compared to actually serving our wholeness and helping us to integrate and to recover all of our parts it actually disintegrates so it's a real force and one of the big mistakes that the new age movement uh, unicorns and rainbow and i was smiling when you said that yeah because they're overly one-sided they're into love and light and because they're avoiding the shadow, they're unwittingly empowering the shadow, you know, and and that's the tragedy of it. Boy, uh, <laughs> I think that's the heart and soul of this whole discussion. By avoiding the shadow, we actually give it power and strength. Yeah, yeah. If uh, I could just say, like, the thing about Watiko, it's a form of, of, of blindness. So we turn a blind eye. And by, by when we're avoiding, when we're turning a blind eye towards the darkness, we're treating it as if it's real or we wouldn't have to look away. So we're unwittingly invested, investing it with reality. But because the Watiko mind virus is a form of blindness, that means that, yeah, the, the, you know, the solution, the medicine, the antidote, the vaccine is to see how it works. So we have to face it and embrace it and walk right into the midst of it all. Yeah, but we have to develop a sense of who we are, you know, um, if not, we'll get destroyed, you know, and this is portrayed in fairy tales, like when the hero, the heroine meets the demon early on, if they confront a demon, they haven't developed enough ego strength, they'll get obliterated. So they have to, you know, go away, they have to run. And that's not cowardice, that's wisdom. But then typically in a fairy tale, which is symbolizing the psychic processes of all of us, you know, then the hero or heroine meets the demon. And then if they run away, then they're avoiding their fate because by avoiding, by turning a blind eye, we're actually avoiding being in relationship with a part of ourselves. So we're at the point in our evolution as a species where we're fated, each one of us individually within our own minds. And, um, you know, and it starts individually, really to actually face our own shadow and the shadow has a personal and an archetypal dimension let's follow this idea of uh, myth and fable and and fairy tale uh, joseph campbell is pretty clear about this 
He said things like, uh, the treasure you seek is hidden in the cave you least wish to enter. And that's really Jungian um, about uh, facing your fear. And uh, Jung wrote a something, it's a Latin phrase I've never been able to pronounce. And, and <laughs> in spite of having two years of Latin in school, uh, it's an almost impronounceable uh, phrase from ancient alchemy that translates, it is in the filth that there's always, uh, the gold is always guarded by a dragon or the princess is locked in the tower by the wicked witch. And the only way that you're going to, uh, you know, survive the quest is by slaying those dragons, but they're not out there. The demons are not out there. They're inside right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you're describing, I mean, that's that's creatively articulated in every, every spiritual tradition based on wisdom, you know, and and on in alchemy and Gnosticism and Kabbalah and Buddhism and Christianity. The idea being like Kabbalah talks about that the descent on the behalf of the ascent. In other words, we have to go down into the darkness that hidden within matter, hidden within the darkness is the light. And that our role is to really free that spirit or that light that's in, seemingly imprisoned in the matter, that that's the role we play in the cosmic drama. And, um, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I had a lid-lifting experience about 30 years ago in a very casual meditation. Uh, as I recall, it was little more than... Uh, staring out the window. It was uh, a non-guided uh, contemplation, you know? No purpose or intention involved. And, man, suddenly everything opened up inside my head. And clear as a bell, Paul, I heard this voice say to me, it even used my name, it said, Michael, the best parts of you are hidden where you're most afraid to look. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, boy, I have to repeat that a few times so I don't forget. And after repeating it maybe twice, I realized I was never going to forget this. It yeah. completely changed my life. Instead of avoiding fear, my job is to search for it, to identify it, and to move directly into it. And, yeah. of course, it's subtle. Sometimes fear will present itself in very clear ways, and sometimes it's really subtle, isn't it? Yeah, no, and fear is the superfood for Watiko. I mean, if we indulge and get identified and act out of fear, we are then unwittingly offering ourselves for being an instrument for Watiko. And yeah, it's really subtle the way fear presents itself. It's elusive, it's shape-shifting. That's the, the nature of the Watiko bug. See, in alchemy, they talk about the prima materia, the raw chaos, the despised part of the psyche, the ish, which you have to find. And that's the material in which you put it into the hermetic vessel and seal it. And then out, if you don't find the prima materia, there's no way of, um, you know, to make the gold, the philosopher's stone, the lapis, which is the awakened mind. And in alchemy, interestingly, their God image, they created a new God image instead of Christ, who was, you know, just an expression completely of the light, but he excluded the darkness. 
And symbolically, that got picked up by Satan, where the alchemists, the god image reconfigured itself, and their god image was was Mercurius, and Mercurius was a conjunction of the opposites, who is the most sublime divinity, and he was found in the sewers, okay? So the point is that all of a sudden, the alchemists were unconsciously or consciously having the realization that we ourselves, our role in the divine drama is to reconcile the opposites that had been split and polarized. And what Tico feeds, it inspires the polarization that we see in the world today, and it feeds off of it in a self-reinforcing feedback loop. So our job is to really bring those opposites together where we can hold that. Yeah, yeah. and in the Bible, God even says, I create the light and the dark. You know, the idea that the two at a certain point are secret allies and are indistinguishable from each other. But as long as we have this dualistic consciousness, then we project out the shadow outside of ourselves. And that's psychologically speaking, that's the dynamic that's at the bottom of Watiko. And we see that being played out all over the world with like all the wars that are happening. Maybe I shouldn't reference this because I don't know if you or uh, how many others in our audience today remember this, but while we're pulling on all these classic examples, I remember of, I mean, it was it had a big impact on me when I was in high school. The, uh, the initial Star Trek series, you know, in the 60s with Kirk and Spock, and uh, in their encounters, they ran into a monster that fed on their fear. And it wasn't until about two-thirds of the way through the episode that they realized that they could not be afraid of this frightening monster because it fed the monster if they demonstrated fear. So they conquered it with uh, laughter and humor. And uh, it... uh, soured the punch so the monster went away (laughs) they they just refused to be afraid but i think there's more to it than that we can't just refuse to be afraid we really need to as they say feel it to heal it and uh the only way out is through yeah you've had your own dark night of the soul you were diagnosed as being mentally ill at at some point yeah 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 how Work your way out of that. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm happy to talk about that. So in essence, what happened, you know, I'm an only child and it wound up, you know, that my father was a really sick man, a really sort of bad guy. And I could I could write a book about it, which I've already done a 600 page book. So when I was individuating, when I was in college, he was so fused with me and wanted to possess me and was so unconsciously identified with me and vicariously getting off on my accomplishments that he did everything he could to obliterate that individuation urge and that creative impulse that I was becoming intimate with. And it created enormous suffering for me. I went from being a happy, healthy person to not being able to live my life. And I dealt with it by going inwards and, um, you know, really just inquiring into my, inside my own mind. And then within a few years, I had this life transforming spiritual awakening. I got hit by a bolt of lightning not from outside, it ignited in my brain. My Kundalini had just erupted. And within hours, stuff began happening in my life that was physically impossible. And But I was so ecstatic because I was realizing we're having a collective dream. We're all dreaming this up together, you know, and I was so unprepared for what I was realizing. I was 24. 
I was so enthusiastic and entheos that etymologically it means to be, you know, filled with spirit that I freaked people out. They, all they knew to do was pathologize me. I immediately got brought by an ambulance to a hospital and diagnosed as bipolar. And, and I knew I was having a spiritual awakening. It couldn't have been more clear to me. And that's what saved me. So during that next a little bit under two years, maybe three, four five times, I was thrown in mental hospitals because I was a free agent and I hadn't fully integrated what I was realizing. Now I say the same thing I'm saying 40 plus years ago, but instead of being hospitalized and diagnosed, people are paying me money to like study with me. So it's been quite a change, but I was fortunate to be able to extricate myself very quickly um, from the psychiatric system where it would have killed me. You know, they were totally pathologizing me. If I would have subscribed to their version that I was mentally ill, I'd be mentally ill for the rest of my life. I'd need to be on medication until my dying breath. It would have killed me. And from their point of view, that would have been a successful treatment because I would have agreed with, with their diagnosis. And I just saw they had no idea. It was so off their radar of somebody spiritually awakening and what that looked like. So the fact that I knew inside, it couldn't have been made more clear to me that I was having this realization. That's what saved my life. You know, what's coming up for me listening to you is uh, Christ saying, I am the light and the way. And so if we're going to walk into the shadow, if we're going to face our fears, uh, what will light our way? It's the Christos in us or our Buddha nature uh, the fact that we we are we are emanations of that which is divine, we can be that light that not only lights our way but shields us and protects us as we do this uh, fire walk, so to speak, but move deeper and deeper into the cave we really don't want to go into. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to develop this connection. You know, like having this this uh, intimate this relationship with the self, with the higher self. That's the whole point of, that's what Jung was trying to get across in his psychotherapeutic work, was trying to help people to connect with their inner guide, their inner guidance that, that always is right there. We have access to, but we've forgotten and we've disconnected. And that he calls it the ego self-access, but it's the idea that we can actually, you know, develop relationship with a part of us that's transcended to and has wisdom, way more wisdom than our ego, and and that's actually interfacing with the divine. And, um, you know, and that, if we don't have that connection with the self, then if we try to, you know, have it out with the darkness, we'll be destroyed, you know, because we're yeah. not connected to something that's greater than ourselves. Well, there's so much here. You refer in your book with Tico to this condition, this uh, spirit is a mind of virus yeah, yeah. and collective psychosis. I want to take a short break and then let's, uh, let's draw a parallel to COVID. Yeah. Right? Paul Levy is my guest on KPFK. I almost said the wrong call letters. <laughs> I forgot for a moment what station I was on, on KPFK in Los Angeles. And we'll be right back after this short break. Don't go away. This is The Ageless Wisdom. I'm Michael Benner. KPFK on your radio at 90.7 FM, serving all of Southern California and indeed the world. 
by uh, live streaming at kpfk.org. We also podcast and even post to YouTube. So search for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And uh, thanks for joining us on the radio. Tuesday is at 1 o'clock. We appreciate it. We feel the group mind here. So if you can join us uh, Tuesdays at 1, that's great. We're talking about Watiko, a, a new book by Paul Levy. And uh, Paul's our guest today. I don't have to tell KPFK listeners that uh, these are critical, even apocalyptic times. The uh, global warming, the uh, likelihood of echo collapse, the uh, rise of uh, a new fascism in America, the likely loss of our democracy, the kind of uh, winner-take-all capitalism that really has nothing to do with the, the free enterprise that we believe that it represents. All of this is not just something that's being done to us, but a reflection of us collectively. And we got to get the pony in front of the cart. I mean, both things are true. Life's a two-way street. But the emphasis, I think, in this uh, chicken and the egg needs to be on the fact that life reflects the consciousness of the human beings who populate it. And so we need to take some responsibility for the way we think, the way we respond, the way we treat people who scare the bejesus out of us, and, and how we deal with this gross uh, polarization that is dividing even marriages and, and, and families, brother against brother and sister against sister. Paul, uh, do you see COVID as a kind of a metaphor for Watiko? Yeah, in, in my new book, I, the last section is all about COVID, and I'm pointing out that, that the real deadly virus that's threatening our species is not COVID, but is, is the mind virus called Watiko. And, you know, if we think about the COVID virus as merely physical, we're completely missing the mark. It's not just, you know, I mean, e even if it, well, it's not just physical in that it has all these, these other vectors or dimensions of its being. Because think about how since it's emerged into this waking dream, into our life that, you know, we're having, um, how it's affected every aspect of our lives, both the financial system, the political system, socially, what we wear, what we think about, what we dream about, how we interact with each other. Every aspect of our lives has been affected by this supposed physical virus, which is to say it has all these other aspects of transmission. And, um, you know, so when you see that, you begin to realize, oh, it has like sort of the subtle body. The virus has an operational subtle body that's not merely physical, but actually interfaces with our mind. Now, our mind is the arena, our psyche. That's where Watiko mind virus operates. And so the point is, and I go into this in my book, there's a way of actually seeing the COVID virus and its impact on the world and all of its effects that help us to see the Watiko mind virus. Because as long as we don't see it, Remember, Watiko, it's a form of blindness. It's a mind blindness. It's the very mind blindness that in the Bible, 
that is talked about. They talk about this mysterious mind blindness, as do the Gnostics. You see, so Watiko is a counterfeiting spirit that puts us on. It impersonates us. And if we then identify with its limited, wounded, traumatized version of ourselves, um, then it has us. Because it has no power over us whatsoever when we're connected with our nature. But if we then identify with its fictitious identity, then it can manipulate us. And think about what I just described. Um, On the one hand, we give ourselves away, we identify with who we're not, and we disconnect. You see, the thing, we, we, we disconnect from our creative agency. Watiko has no creativity at all, and uh, but it plugs into our creativity, and it turns it against us. And that's why the antidote for Watiko is for us to get in touch with our nature, because our nature is creative. And when we get in touch with our nature, we then express ourselves creatively. And when we do that, we deepen our realization of our nature in a positive feedback loop that creates light upon light, to, you know, so to speak. And that completely depotentiates Watika. Let's talk about, uh, in a practical sense, the strategies or tactics for dealing with the current polarization, whether we see it political or, or cultural. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There, there's just so much anxiety. And I see the appeal of shunning and ignoring those people who frighten us, who see fascism as appealing as long as it's all white. And that's what fascism is, you know. White supremacy is the cornerstone of fascism. And uh, we see this alliance with the fascism of uh, Russia, which is confusing because we used to, the Soviet Union went from left-wing totalitarianism to right-wing totalitarianism, and I think that confuses a lot of people. But then I say, well, it's not enough for me just to shun these people and avoid them. I really feel like I do need to engage with them, but they, they don't want to be educated or uplifted. I have a hard time finding a, a way to appeal to yeah. what I see as the source of yeah. this wickedness, this fear, this totalitarianism, uh, climate denial, racism, sexism, homophobia, ethnocentrism. It goes on and on and on. Yeah. So we can't shun them. They're really not open to being educated. How do we engage, Paul? Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that um, because um, so on the one hand, if we're not intimate with our own darkness, how in the world are we going to deal with the darkness outside of us? In other words, if we try to like to illumine the darkness outside of us when our own darkness isn't illumined, we're just, it's like darkness trying to get rid of darkness. So, you know, on the one hand, we have to be clear, we have to first start with our own selves and illumine our own shadow, both personally and whatever aspect of it interfaces with the archetypal shadow. But then if we're preaching the light to people whose eyes are blind, who's the one who's blind? It's us. Okay. Because that strategy doesn't work at all. So it's a much better idea in a way to just carry your light and embody your light and in a way teach people the art of seeing however one does that that's a whole other discussion 
you know, and one thing too, because of the polarization, I mean, our world has never been so polarized as it's been the last number of years. And that's an expression you see, the sickness of our age, according to Young, is the sickness of disassociation. And Watiko is an inner disease of the soul that actually expresses itself via the medium of the outside world. What that means is that what's playing out in the world is actually reflecting what's happening in the state of a psyche that's under the thrall of Watiko. Um, and so when we begin to recognize the inner as the outer, that's to recognize the dreamlike nature. That's to all of a sudden have the realization, wait, we're actually co-dreaming this together. There's no Watiko separate, objectively independent from us. No, we are dreaming up this psychic epidemic, this collective psychosis, and to have the realization of the part of us that's colluding in that, that's participating in that, that's to unlock, that's to sort of free ourselves from the grip of Watiko, that's to unlock our compassion and our creativity, and then we're in a position to really, uh, you know, to be able to deal with that polarization. And one other thing about the polarization, you know, because Watiko, it inspires the polarization and it feeds off of it. Okay. So the point is to the extent that we are able to entertain in our imagination, how these other polarized points of view are seeing and, oh yeah, we can see, oh, they have a blind spot, but it could be they're seeing our blind spot. It could be what they're seeing. There might be some hidden grain of truth to it. So all of a sudden then we're building a connectedness instead of, you see, as long as we see people as others, that's the shadow projection. Then as soon as there's others, there's fear and fear is the superfood for Watiko. So the idea is how do we actually recognize our interconnectedness or interdependence? That's really the question. Yeah, this is complex because if, if let's go to that uh, yin and yang Taoism sign that I mentioned earlier. If we see the light in the dark, it's really easy to say, well, the light is the good side, the dark is the bad side. But when we do that, if I understand what you're saying, we're really promoting polarization, separation, and division, even though we think we're trying to heal it. Yeah, well, the thing, you see, here's the thing about Watiko. It's the source of the greatest evil, and it also is offering us the most incredible medicine. And it has its own vaccine encoded within it. It's actually helping us. If Watiko didn't exist, we would have to invent it. And what I mean is, because of Watiko, it's literally forcing us to get in touch with our divine endowment, to, to get in touch with our genuine creative agency and to evolve just like you have this this virus that when we try to like treat it it will mutate what tico unlike that forces us to mutate it's literally the greatest catalyst for the evolution of our species that there's ever been but if we don't recognize that it will destroy us what my, what i'm trying to point out is if we recognize just what's happening that, you know, the origin of the madness that's playing out, this is such a far out theory, is in our psyche. How can anybody argue with that? It's so obvious. And so instead of what Watiko does, it, it kind of forces us to like, you know, to, oh, we're going to think the solution 
or the, the, the problem, the, the actual source of the problem is out there and the solution is out there. No, that's the actual working of Watiko. The actual source of the problem and the solution is to be found within us. We already have, we've already, we already have the solution. We are the solution. That's what Watiko is showing us. It's literally showing us the incredible creative power that each one of us have and we're using it every moment, 24-7. But because we're unconscious of our creative genius, it's getting turned against us in a way that's killing us. What I'm trying to, to show people is that when you become aware of your creative nature, you then actually can express it in a way that's serving not only yourself, but the whole. And when more and more people wake up to this, and connect with each other, then we can actually change what's happening in the world. And that's to participate in our own evolutionary process. That's what this is about. That's what Watika was showing us. And if we don't recognize that, then we're doomed. I know you, uh, you're familiar with uh, the concept of non-dualism and in uh, quantum mechanics and such. Can we, in this context, Consider that Watiko is born of the illusion of separateness? Yeah, well, exactly. One of the ways of really describing Watiko is that um, it is the separate self. As soon, you see, and that's where quantum physics comes. Quantum physics is offering us the medicine. That's why I wrote a book about quantum physics. It's offering the medicine for Watiko. And here's how it taps back into the separate self. Quantum physics discovered that there's no such thing as an objective universe, at least in the way we've been imagining it, if we think that it's separate from us and independent of us and objective. Quantum physics discovered that the act of observing the universe actually influences the universe observed, that perception is a key part of the universe. And that's just like a dream, by the way, that we influence the outer world by the way we're perceiving it. That's, that's exactly a description of a dream. What that means is that the act of observation is creative. Now, here's the thing. If we fall into the trance of thinking that this world exists objectively, right, and we're just passively observing it and, and trying to understand it, well, there's another part of that process. As soon as we conceive the world as being objective, reciprocally co-arising with that thought is our subjective identity as an ego. The subjective, the separate self, and the objective world reciprocally condition and reinforce each other in a feedback loop that's madness. And that's the disease that our species is suffering from. That's Watiko. So when you see through the imagination that the world exists objectively, you actually concurrently shed light on, wait a second, I don't exist as a separate self. I only exist interdependent and interconnected with other beings who themselves don't exist as separate selves. That's the quantum, that's what the, the gnosis of, of quantum physics is showing us, that this is a quantum universe. There's no separate parts. It's all one seamless interconnected whole. And that's us. We aren't separate. To snap out of the separate self, the expression of that is compassion. And compassion is the Watiko dissolver par excellence. So the whole key is exactly what you were saying, Michael, is that separate self. That's the illusion. Well, this reminds me of the, uh, the Buddhist concept of emptiness, yeah, which yeah. is so difficult to get your head around because as soon as you 
try to understand it, you grab onto it, and as soon as you grab onto it, you're you're missing the point. Right. Um, I like the allegory of the sky. Where does the sky? How high do you have to go to touch the sky? Where does the sky begin and end? Or um, you know, challenge someone by saying, "Where where does outer space begin?" Well, we're in outer space, and people look at you. What do you mean we're in outer space? Well, <laughs> well of course you're in outer. Space. Or Buddhists will often point out there are no colors in the world. That's all in your head. That's just light perceived in your brain. And what a challenging concept. What do you mean there are no colors in the world? It looks colorful to me. Talk a little about emptiness. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I talk, I mean, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, so that's something that, you know, I I really, you know, very deeply inquire into. And the, the emptiness, what it really means is that there's no intrinsic, independent, objective existence at all, like, that's separate from our own consciousness. And, you know, one way, very easy way to understand it is in a dream. You're in a dream and you don't know you're in a dream. You think it's objective and real and solid and separate. You know, that's to be asleep. But when you recognize the nature of your circumstance and, and whatever world you're inhabiting in that dream, you recognize it's not separate from your mind. You know, that's what, um, you know, I was just teaching yesterday and I was quoting Jung himself says, the greatest, most important psycho-spiritual task of our species in this unique moment in time is to realize the unity of mind and matter. That was underlying this whole idea of synchronicity, that this world is infused with consciousness, that, that you know, there is no separation between the opposites, between mind and matter. And that's the notion of emptiness, that there's nothing outside of us, ultimately speaking, independently, objectively, intrinsically existing from its own side. And, you know, to have that realization, what you discover is that emptiness itself is empty. There's nothing there to hold on to. That, like you were saying, if you try to grasp onto it, that's the clinging. That's what the Buddha discovered is the source of our suffering is our clinging onto an imaginary sense of self that doesn't exist in the way we imagine it does. And then we invest all of our psychic energy throughout our life defending and protecting that imagined sense of self. And all of that energy that could be expressed creatively goes into this black hole of identifying with a separate self. That's another way of articulating Watiko. And that's the disease of our species. But encoded in the disease, it's actually helping us to snap out of itself. That's what I'm trying to point out, that Watiko is a quantum phenomena that it contains the deepest evil and the highest medicine in a superposition of states within it. But how it manifests depends on how we dream it. In other words, if we recognize what it's revealing to us. We're lucid dreamers. About 35, maybe 40 years ago, I had the good fortune to interview Joseph Chilton Pierce shortly after he had written Crack in the Cosmic Egg in he said, um, he said to me, man's mind is a mirror reflecting a universe that mirrors man's mind. And I've, <laughs> I've played with that in my head for four decades now. It feels like barbershop mirrors, you know, that reflect each other to infinity. And you want to find, where do I break this cycle of a reflection of a reflection of a reflection? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we believe that our mind reflects some objective reality. We know in a more primary way, reality reflects 
the consciousness of our minds, and yet both things are true. And once that once that spiral spins up, it, it's hard to keep your feet on the ground, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's interesting. In the apocryphal text, Christ himself says, I am a mirror to those that perceive me. Okay, and etymologically, mirror, the word mirror means holder of the shadow. So by being a mirror to those that perceive me, Christ, on the one hand, is reflecting our own shadow, our own darkness for us to see it, but he's also reflecting our transpersonal identity, the part of us that's not separate from the divine. And um, the thing about what is a mirror, what is a reflection? Think about a dream. A dream is a reflection of the mind. And, and like, you're totally right. It's not just that there's an objective world out there that the mind is reflecting, because in the act of reflecting it, it's actually creating the very thing it's reflecting. It's not a passive mirror. It's an active mirror. And that touches into our creative agency and power. Yeah, that's why healing works. You put your attention on something with a loving spirit and uh, you recreate it. You, you have an influence anyway. We're not really very good at it, but uh, it matters. You can accelerate healing. You can accelerate learning and understanding if we adopt a peaceful countenance. You see private clients. What do you teach them to do, generally speaking? Yeah, I, I don't really teach them anything. I mean, I, you know, whenever anybody asks me what I do with my clients, I have no idea what to say because it's always creative. You know, there's no technique or, you know, like agenda or anything except to connect with them and be present with them. And to, to, in a way, we're all having this, this process, this, you know, dreaming process. And in a way, you know, I just try to connect with them in their process and try to help them unfold it. And, um, you know, and I guess one thing I do do, which was taught to me by my teachers, when I met these, you know, two of my primary teachers, these Tibet, these lamas, Tibetan lamas, um, after I got out of the last hospital and I was deeply in trauma and deeply wounded by both uh, my father and then the psychiatric um, hospitals. And, and I was sharing with them all of my pain and wounding and trauma and demons. And, and at a certain point, I realized they weren't getting hooked by that. They were actually seeing me as already healed and whole and awakening and healthy. And no matter how convincing I was trying to show them that I was really screwed up, they weren't buying it. But by them seeing the part of me that was whole, it actually created a bridge for me to access that whole part of myself myself. And I realized they can only do that because they were in touch with their own wholeness. And, and more and more in my private practice, I have the realization in a way, that's what I do with people. They come in and they'll share their problems. And, and I call that, that's their Halloween costume. They might be identified with it, but I don't want to get hooked by it to the extent I'm in touch with my own awakening part. I can then have, have a relationship with the part of them that's awakening and that helps them to step into it. So in essence, that might be what I do. It's interesting you say Halloween costume. That's a process I've intuited for myself when I when I try to interpret my uh, emotions. And uh, I will dialogue with them and ask them to please take off the costume and unmask themselves and 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 tell me what they really represent. What are you really trying to teach me here? Right. Well, that's another, you know, addressing your your deepest fears. 
Oh, it's a it's a pleasure to speak with you. And how can uh, folks find out more about you? Tell us your website and the titles of uh, your two most recent books again. Sure. Okay. Well, if people want to find me, um, if they want to awaken in the dream, they can go to awaken in the dream.com. That's my website. And there's a ton of articles because I want to get this work out because it's real, it's medicine. It's really helping people. It's all for free. Um, you know, if you want to set up sessions, you can do that private sessions or, um, you know, I have my books. You can buy my books, you know, autograph copies. And, um, so that would really be the way for people to access me. And then my new book that came out a few months ago is just called Watiko healing the mind virus that plagues our world. Then I've written a book, um, on, on quantum physics, but the other one I want to mention is dispelling Watiko, which came out in January, 2013. So almost 10 years ago, and it's selling more and more and more and more every day, you know, which I think after 10 years is kind of a cool thing. And, you know, it's those two books, Dispelling Watiko and Watiko, the new one, that really they're, they're companion volumes. They really complement because, you know, to just quote Castaneda in the Don, he, he quotes Don Juan as saying that Watiko, he doesn't use the name Watiko, but it's, he calls it the predator, is the topic of topics. It's the most important thing to understand in our world today. And um, that's why I've written two books. I have another book, a third book coming out within a year, also on Watiko. And, um, but it's all on my website. So I just encourage people to go and check it out. Awakening in? No, not awakening. Awaken. Awaken. A-W-A-K-E-N. Awaken in the dream. No, no I-N-G. Got it. Okay. Paul Levy, my guest today. Paul, thank you, sir. Not only for being here, but for your devotion, your dedication, and your good service to the world. I really, really appreciate it. And I know countless others do as well. So thank you, man. It's my pleasure, really. Thank you, Michael, for the invite. Wow, think about that. Your mind is reflecting an external world that is, in fact, a reflection of the collective consciousness of the people living in it. Pretty far out. (laughs) Give you something to do. Hope you enjoyed your Memorial Day holiday weekend, and thanks for being with us today. And hope you'll join us every Tuesday at 1 in the afternoon for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. This program is podcast. It's posted to YouTube. It streams at the homepage, theagelesswisdom.com. And the T-H-E is part of the URL, so theagelesswisdom.com. Find out more about me at michaelbenner.com. Thanks to my producer, Mark Brisky. Stay tuned for Kerry Harrison. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.